Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ali Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallam. Just a couple quick housekeeping things. Um, so if, uh, are the note cards uh, available? Let's just have them passed out ahead of time for the sister side and the brother side. That way if anything comes to mind, you can write it down. Don't feel obligated or you can even stack them in a couple of places. Uh, on both the brothers and sisters side and then that way it can be passed up as soon as the session is done inshallah uh, I think I got through most of the questions from yesterday there's one or two remaining that I think will be addressed in today's session but if not please just rewrite it and send it forward inshallah uh, so that's that's point number one um, the okay so let's continue with this text Bismillahirrahmanirrahim so as a reminder uh, yesterday we sort of left off after Ibn al-Qayyim talks about the three states or conditions of every believer, um, whether they're tried or whether they're in sin or whether they're comfortable and being blessed, uh, the next, he talks about how this ties into sa'ada, which is true contentment and happiness. Now the next section, now he ended that section, if you remember, by saying, Ultimately, really, the condition we find ourselves in, it, it's... Um, uh, that's not, that shouldn't be the focus. It should be the reaction. And the reason the reaction is the focus is because of abda. Is Allah not sufficient for me? So we left off with that sort of a statement. Meaning, for someone who truly wants to reach the pinnacle of belief, it requires that they reach a state where they realize, where we realize, that ultimately Allah has to be sufficient for me. So then, whatever Allah sends my way, it really doesn't matter. Because I have Allah. And that's the pinnacle of, of belief in Allah Ta'ala. So then he continues this next section, which highlights, um, you can almost say that the second section is, um, talks about this special group of servants of Allah's. So this is what the focus is going to be. So he continues, these are the servants, meaning those special servants who have this yaqeen in sort of, that Allah is sufficient for them. Um, these are the servants over whom Allah Ta'ala's foe, his, his enemy, meaning shaitan, has no control over. Allah Ta'ala said to shaitan, um, and it comes in the Quran, uh, uh, Lo, as for my servants, you have no power over them. And when his foe, shaitan, Iblis, learned that he would not let, meaning Allah would not let his devoted servants yield to him or give him control over them, he proclaimed, then by your might, I will surely beguile them all except for your sincere, the ser sincere servants amongst you. Right, it comes in the Quran. Um, and then he continues, and Allah Ta'ala Most High said, and Iblis found his calculation true, for they all followed him, for they all followed him, except for a group of true believers. So this is what's being highlighted in this section, that um, there will always be a set group of believers who will be protected from shaitan, by and large, from his main sort of intentions of derailing us for good. And for us, that means that our desire should be that we seek to be amongst the, that special group of servants. And that's sort of the purpose of these sorts of gatherings as well. There's the general sort of community gatherings that occur, and they have some benefit for us, and the majority of the community falls under that. But our, what we're trying to seek here, in this sort of a program, for instance, or in a special gathering like this, 
we don't, we're not content with just mediocrity in deen. We're seeking the pinnacle of deen, which is that we ultimately become from amongst the special servants that even shaitan cannot eventually get to. Now, he'll talk about it. This doesn't mean that we're not going to be heedless at times or make mistakes, but that complete derailment of life that occurs, that shaitan can deceive people into thinking that this world is permanent and there's no concept of a hereafter that I need to work toward, that degree of derailment, the sincere servants are protected from. So he says, and Allah Ta'ala, and Iblis found his calculation true, for they all followed him, meaning the majority of people will follow Iblis and follow shaitan. They will be led by him. And then he says, except, except for a sincere group, that they will, and, and uh, uh, he, Iblis will find that what, this is true. They all followed him, except فريق, uh, uh, a firqa, a group of believers that were sincere in their intentions and efforts. Shaitan was not able to, and is not able to derail them and deceive them. And he had no warrant whatsoever uh, over any of them, except that we might, you know, the ones who believe in the hereafter from those who doubt it. And then he continues, Allah Ta'ala will not yield to his foe, his enemy, shaitan, uh, or any enemy, control over his faithful servants. I mean, that's really special. That there's a group of people that Allah Ta'ala will not give up on. And that Allah Ta'ala will protect from the derailment that can occur from shaitan. And we should want to be from amongst that special group of people. We should want to be from among that special group of people. You know, it's interesting. We sometimes have this sort of uh, attachment to human beings. You know, let's just say we're in a store or something like that, and we hear some violent attacker has entered into the store, right? And as a parent, your kids are with you. What do you do? You have a general concern for everyone in the store. Try to find a safe spot, hide, escape, do whatever you can, right? But, or, or let's say a, the place catches fire. But when it comes to your own children... Right? You're going to make sure that everyone is attended to. Where is uh, Bakr? Where is Zaid? Where is Fatima? Are they okay? While everyone else is running and panicking, you just don't have the same concern for everyone else as you would for your own children. Because you really want them to be protected from this assailant or from this, uh, from this uh, whatever difficulty is befalling. So similarly, there's a group of servants that Allah Ta'ala's attention is on. And he will never, he says, Allah will not yield to his foe, to his enemy, control over his faithful servants. They are in his protection and in his care. And if the devil, shaitan, robs any of them, as the thief robbed the heedless man, this cannot be avoided because by heedlessness, ghafla, passion, shahwa, and anger, ghadab, is the servant tried. It is by these same three doors that the devil comes to him. Try as he may protect, the servant is bound to be heedless and given to passion and anger. So what he's saying is, there's going to be a group of faithful servants, right, that we are striving to become. This doesn't mean that we're never going to have a moment of heedlessness or fall to our passions or fall to our anger. Allah Ta'ala will never give up this group of faithful servants until the end of time to shaitan in the long term. But that doesn't negate the fact that we are going to 
inevitably, just by our nature as human beings, make some mistakes along the way, and we will succumb to shaitan. And the three ways that he says shaitan gets to every person, one is going to be shahwa, which is desires or, or passions and lust. The second is through anger or ghadab, right? And everyone's experience is different in this world. Some people struggle with anger. Some people struggle with shahwa. Some people struggle with ghafla, which is heedlessness, which is being mindless of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, try as he may to protect himself, the servant is bound to be heedless and given to passion and anger. Now, he continues. And again, the sister should be able to see the screen. He continues talking about how sometimes we strive for perfection. This next section, he highlights how that's not practical, right? Being from amongst Allah's special servants doesn't mean that I'm going to be perfect in everything. But it does mean that I am ultimately going to always turn back to Allah. So he continues, Adam salam, the father of all humanity, was the most discerning of creatures. They're superior in wisdom and the most steadfast. Adam salam, our prophet Adam, he said he was the father of all humanity, was the most discerning of creatures. They're superior in wisdom and the most steadfast. Because Allah Ta'ala fashioned him himself, right? This is, I mean, and, and, and he's a prophet of Allah. So that by, by default automatically puts him above everyone when it comes to wisdom and understanding and appreciation of the greatness of Allah and his magnificence and the reality of creation. Yet the foe, shaitan, kept after him until he made him fall into that which he had fallen to. So he's saying that this is a prophet of Allah. And look at the, the wording that he used. I mean, in Arabic, it's a little bit different. Um, well, okay. So, but the, the, even the translator is very respectful of not saying that there was a mistake or a sin committed, right? We don't think about that when it comes to the prophets. That made him fall into that which he had fallen into. He's saying, if Iblis, sorry, if Adam alayhi salam, as superior in wisdom and in intellect and in connection with Allah, ended up falling to what he had fallen to, then he says, what then of someone with the reason of a moth? whose intelligence compared to that of his father, Adam salam, is like a spittle in the ocean. Where does that leave us? You know, where does that leave us? If Adam salam, that circumstance had occurred and he had, uh, he had partaken of the forbidden tree and that, you know, that was Adam salam, who's so perfect, where does that leave us? He says, what then of someone with the reason of a moth whose intelligence compared to that of his father, Adam salam, is like a spittle in the ocean. Still, the foe of God, shaitan, or you know, the enemies of Allah, they obtain nothing from a faithful servant except by robbing him in a moment of inattention and carelessness. And when he causes him to fall, the servant may think that he can never again face his Lord, that this fall has carried him away and destroyed him. You know, so what he's mentioning here is that um, because human beings are so focused on perfection, at least in our society, and even in deen, even if we're not necessarily seeking perfection, in our mind, our thought is excellence equates perfection in worship with no mistake or no error. Like, for instance, I sh and we, we, we relate this to just our day-to-day. -day. So, for instance if there's any blemish on my permanent record or there's any blemish on my education or if there's any blemish on my CV, that really bothers me because in this world, excellence is defined by perfection. And if there's a blemish, that's looked down upon. So he's saying that when it comes to our interaction with Allah, 
that that's not necessarily the case. In fact, it becomes a trap at times. Because he says, still, um, and when he causes him to fall, it's inevitable. The shaitan will cause us to fall from time to time through one of the three ways that are mentioned. The servant may think that he can never again face his Lord, that his fall has carried him away and destroyed him. And this is, this is unfortunate because it plagues so many people that committed a major sin or a minor sin or some mistake they've made years ago. And then they've held on to it thinking that not only can I never attain, attain excellence with Allah because of this, but on top of that, this weight is going to be with me until I leave this world. But that's just not reality. Things, sin, transgression, transgressions against Allah, the shaitan encourages us to word. They're never, they are not by their nature designed to be permanent. And in fact, in some way they're expected. Right? The Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith that, uh, that every son of Adam, السلام, every servant, every person, every human being is someone who performs sins. Khata'un, uh, almost regularly and consistently. They're repeatedly performing it. So for us to think that there's something that we've done in our life that not only is holding us back, but as he mentions, that this, uh, uh, the servant may think he can never again face his Lord. Sometimes we don't even want to present ourselves before Allah. And yes, there's some good to that because there has to be an element of shame when we make a mistake. But to think that I can never present this before my Lord and finally make amends with it is deception. In fact, that's a bigger deception than the sin that actually occurred. So he continues, yet, yeah, this is amazing. I mean, the wording of this text, especially in Arabic, but I think even the translator did an excellent job. He says, yet, yet, right? That we think that this fall has carried him away and destroyed him. Yet, behind it, is, uh, behind it all is Allah's grace, his rahmah, his clemency, and his forgiveness. Right? And it's really important. I mentioned this yesterday just to highlight. This is why it's really important to understand or to know what, where we stand with our Allah. Um, like, I should feel comfortable if I make a mistake, I should feel comfortable facing my Allah and, and owning up to the mistake that I made, recognizing that I'm working with an, the, the most merciful being, period. I'm, it, it should be easier for us in this situation to be able to rectify things than if we had to go back to our boss or go to our spouse or go to someone else when we make a mistake. And the reason is because he says, behind it is Allah's grace, his mercy, his clemency, and his forgiveness. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, for If we don't understand the mercy of Allah and his ability to forgive, and we apply the same rules to Allah as we do to other people, Sure, it makes sense why we might be so afraid or we might be stuck thinking that this is not something that can come off my shoulders. Because I make a major mistake with my wife or with my husband, you know, infidelity or something, something you know, significant, that's it. The relationship is over. I make a major mistake at work, that's it. The relationship is over. I'm, I'm fired. I make a major mistake with my parent, that relationship is cut off. I make a ma major mistake at this retreat, I get kicked out by the director, right? You know, three strikes, it's over, right? There's no three-strike rule with Allah. There could be a hundred strikes. It could be a thousand strikes. In fact, in Hadith Qudsi, it's so incredible. The Prophet said, the Hadith Qudsi means this is coming, this is the words of Allah, that Iblis or Shaitan will say uh, to Allah that, that I uh, will most certainly 
mislead all of your servants. And I will continue to work on, on their souls and mislead them until they die. And Allah Ta'ala responds and says that I will continue to forgive this servant until he leaves. Right? Meaning the ability of Allah to forgive and shaitan to deceive. I mean, this is a completely different ballgame. Allah's ability to forgive is far higher than shaitan's ability to deceive and derail. Allah Ta'ala's ability to overlook is far greater than, than our ability to sin or make a mistake. Because for us to have to falter and fall to a trick of shaitan requires effort and energy on our part. But for Allah Ta'ala to forgive the most heinous of crimes, it requires no effort whatsoever on Allah's part. And his nature is to, to, to forgive his servants. So then he continues, just to highlight this principle. Four, uh, if Allah intends what is good for his, his servant, uh, if Allah Ta'ala intends what is good for his servant, he will then open for him the doors of repentance, at-tawbah, and remorse, nadama, abasement and humility, dependence and need. The doors of request for Allah's help and protection. Look, look at what he's mentioning here. If Allah intends what is good for his servant, if, I, if Allah Ta'ala wants what's best for me, what's a sign that this is occurring for me or has occurred for me? It's not, I mean, there's many signs, but here he's mentioning in particular that a sign that Allah Ta'ala is intending good for me is that he will open for me the doors of tawbah, of repentance and remorse. He'll allow me to constantly turn back to him in reflection and seeking his complete forgiveness. And he will, he, um, the doors for abasement and humility, he will take my ego, which is up here, normally, and he brings it down so that I finally recognize who he is. That's a sign that Allah wants what's good for me. And he creates within me a sense of dependence and need. This sense of helplessness that I can't do anything without my Allah. I can't take a step. I can't take a breath. I can't move from place to place. I can't get a job. I can't earn a living. I can't own a home. I can't have children. I can't do anything. I can't, I can't even worship Without the tawfiq of Allah, Allah Ta'ala creates that sense of dependence and need in those believers that He wants good for. And the doors of the, of the request for Allah's help and protection. So this is what He's highlighting here, right? Uh, you know, there's a tawfiq required from Allah to allow us to say to Him, I'm sorry. That requires the tawfiq of Allah. For me to be able to recognize that I am weak and he is everything. And I sin and he uh, uh, is the one who forgives. And I make mistakes and he is perfect. For me to be able to recognize this, this requires the tawfiq of Allah. And this is what he's saying, for Allah, when Allah intends what is good for his servant, meaning a sign of being special, is not perfection in worship, is not perfection in some other deed, is not perfection in some act, or not perfection in, 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 uh, uh, in some ibadah. It's perfection in the ability to turn back to Allah and recognize that I am a weak servant of His and no matter what I do, I'm going to fail at least in my um, relationship with my Lord. Fail, not in the sense of... Uh, failure here means in the individual acts, but ultimately it's the manifestation of success. Right? The manifestation of success when it comes to this world is that I am regular and consistent in my tawbah. So he continues. Um, 
This is what one of the early believers, the Salaf, meant when he had said, A person may commit a sin by which he goes to heaven and a good deed by which he goes to hell. How? Someone asked. He replied, Having committed the sin, he is ever watchful in fear, regretful, timorous, lamenting, shamed before his Lord, his head in his hands, and his heart rent. Right? I mean, that's what sin can cause within us. It can effectuate this sort of a response for emotion, is this. Then he says, that sin, subhanAllah, that sin brings him all that we have mentioned, wherein lie his happiness, his sa'ada, and his salvation. Is more beneficial, and this sin is more beneficial to him than numerous devotional acts. Indeed, it becomes the means by which he enters heaven. Right? I know it's a bit paradoxical, and we're never going to aim to commit sin. But, I mean, I think the most important thing that I hope everyone takes from this session is the paradigm. You know, we're so used to trying to rise up above everyone else and rise up against everything, even Allah, in, in the way we approach things. And we're so used to seeking this notion that we're going to be perfect in everything. Um, and, uh, and while we never aim to make a mistake or sin, we have to be true to ourselves and true to Allah and appreciate that we are weak. And Allah is perfect. And I mean, the pinnacle of worship occurs when I can achieve this state. It's not, look how focused and concentrated I am in my prayer. And look how perfect I am in my ability to interact with my Lord. No, look how imperfect I am. When I'm standing before Allah, it's not me expressing you know, my perfection. It's me expressing my imperfection. And that's actually what khushu is. Right? When I'm sitting and doing istighfar, it's not me illustrating my perfection to Allah that's going to uh, have, cause acceptance. It's me demonstrating my imperfection to Allah. It's in, in, and it's in our ability to understand our imperfection as it relates to Allah that ultimately leads to our success. So he says it's paradoxical, but that paradigm has to be understood because then he says that uh, how, so the, again, let me repeat, that, repeat the, the paragraph. This is what one of the early believers, the Salaf, meant when he said, a person may commit a sin by which he goes to Jannah and a good deed by which he goes to hell, Jahannam. And how, someone asked, how is that possible? Good deeds take you to Jannah and sins take you to Jahannam. How is it possible? He replied, having committed the sin, he is ever watchful in fear, regretful, uh, regretful, timorous, lamenting, and shamed before his Lord. If my deed is leading me to feel higher than Allah in some way, or feel good about myself in some way, then I failed with that deed. If my sin has caused me to recognize my weakness before Allah, then that sin is what's going to lead me to Jannah rather than the deed. He is ever watchful. He's in, uh, in fear because now I'm like really worried about Allah's punishment because he has the ability to punishment. I'm regretful because I made a mistake with the most merciful being who gave me everything. What's wrong with me that I can't even listen to a single one of his commandments? And he's lamenting, shamed before his Lord, creating a sense of shame, his head in his hands figuratively and his heart rent. You know, that, that, that nadama, that sadness that you feel after you transgressed against Allah. That sin brings him all that we have mentioned, wherein lie his happiness and salvation. It is more beneficial to him than numerous devotional acts. Indeed, it becomes the means by which he enters Jannah. Now, there's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that highlights this. Again, the goal is never to seek sin. 
but it's to be regular in turning back to Allah when that sin occurs. And the Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith, I think it's just such a powerful, powerful hadith. He says, on the Day of Judgment, or uh, you know, all of us will have our sahifa, our book of our book that we've turned in and that we're going to receive uh, back in our hands. The Prophet said, "Tuba, glad tidings be toward the person when he receives his book and he looks at it, he finds istighfaran kathira, abundant istighfar, abundant istighfar." I mean, that's incredible. I mean, we would think, based off of the accolades of this world, the CVs that we try to produce, the perfect resumes that we try to attain, the straight A's that we work toward and we have our children work toward, that if I'm going to get this book in, in my hand, it better just have accolade after accolade after accolade. It better have perfection after perfection after perfection. But glad tidings be, glad tidings be the person who receives that book and all it's, you're seeing is imperfection after imperfection after imperfection, except it's rectified by perfection, which is istighfar. Right? So that should be a regular habitual practice of all of us. And this is why this is something that we're, we're trying to incorporate into the program. Istighfar is, the, is seeking forgiveness from Allah. And it is such a, a unique form of expression. I mean, that, that, I, that no matter where I am in my life, there's always something that I have to turn back to Allah for in istighfar. And whether that istighfar be for a sin that I committed in the past, whether that be for a bad habit that I have, or whether it be for a mistake that I've made, or what if it, what, or that istighfar be because of the times that I've been heedless of Allah, there's always something that I have that I can do istighfar for, and that becomes a mechanism by which we achieve. Right? It's possible that we can achieve jannah through sin. Right? I, again, we don't ever seek it. But we achieve Jannah indirectly through it because this is what creates remorse in our hearts. And this is what creates, you know, if I never made a mistake in my life, right, I'm not going to really appreciate the need that I have before Allah Ta'ala to eliminate that mistake. And that nadama and that sadness and that regret is so pleasing to Allah. It's so pleasing to Allah. You know, um, and there's many hadith that, that, that refer to this. Um, it's so pleasing to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. He desires that we do this. Not that we sin, but that when we fall, because we are going to fall, that we turn back to him. Then he continues. Um, okay, if there, uh, you can, yeah, okay, he continues. On the other hand, he may perform, he may perform a goodly deed and constantly laud it before his Lord, wax proud, boast, become vain and haughty with it. As he says, I did this and I did that. His self-importance, pride, and arrogance provide him only with the means to his own ruin. And then he continues, he says, if Allah intends, uh, if then Allah, so now, now he's talking about the opposite situation, where someone who is performing goodly deeds, right? But then he's proud about it. She, he or she boasts about it. They became vain and haughty with it. And he says, I did this and I did that. Um, his self-importance, pride, and arrogance provide him only with the means to his own ruin. Then he says, if Allah intends then what is good for this miserable person. So now I'm someone who performed deeds and I boast about it. I make the community know about it. I want to publicize what really should be private. I want to... Uh, post, you know, online 
every good thing, every achievement, every accolade, every accomplishment that I've made, in particular when it comes to my, my interaction with Allah, right? The, the sadaqah that I've given, the Quran that I've read or memorized. I want to make sure the world knows about, about this. For this person, what's this person's way out? If Allah intends what is good for this miserable person, right, he, will try him, he will try him through something that breaks his pride, abases him, and reduces his self-importance. It's so paradoxical, the thinking. We would think that through accomplishing something, if Allah wants what's good for me, that, you know, is, uh, I should be elevated further, right? But again, the paradigm is that Allah is perfect and we are imperfect. And even in our deeds, we have to recognize there's imperfection when we do perform them. And we have to recognize that no matter what we do, it's never ultimately going to be worthy of being presented, and nothing, never ever going to reach the level of perfection that Allah Ta'ala has. It's always going to be imperfect no matter what effort we put in. So he says, if Allah wants what's good for this person who thinks that his worship is perfect and his contribution to the world is perfect and he or she is, is, is God's gift to mankind, if Allah wants what's good for this person, then what will he do? He will try him through something that breaks his pride, abases him and reduces his self-importance. And However, on the other hand, if he intends otherwise, meaning he doesn't intend good for this person who's actually succeeding in, in deeds, he will leave him to his self-importance and pride and this misfortune is what leads to his ruin. He will leave you alone. Say, okay, you did this. You know, there's, a hadith, there's hadith that mention the, the, the scholar who says that I studied such and such deen on the day of judgment. It'll be asked, uh, and I did this for you. And then Allah Ta'ala said, no, you did it because you wanted other people to sing your praises and say, what a great adam, what a great scholar. Look at all the hadith he knew and the Quran he knew. And Allah Ta'ala will say, you got your reward. Now, now it's time for, for the punishment. You, you already got it in this world. There's no reward for you here, right? So th there's, and there's, there's an example of a fighter. There's an example... So, uh, but so what, what he's saying is if this situation is to be rectified in this world, what will Allah do to that person is he'll abase him and he'll suppress his pride in some way, sometimes through a difficulty, sometimes through public humiliation. You know, we've seen this, it's unfortunate, but maybe it's fortunate that someone is making such a major contribution to the world and then they themselves have this self-sense of, of, of inflation and pride. They think they've accomplished something, sometimes to the point of... of um, Ujub uh, or admiration of the self Sometimes to the point of kibr To the point of pride Where I think I'm now better than everyone else Right? So uh, what happens? Then some major test comes their way They're publicly humiliated about something They're debased completely And now they almost have to start anew And this becomes a reminder for that person That look, no matter how popular I am in the world No matter how many likes I have No matter how many people respond to the messages that I put out No matter how great I may look in front of the community Ultimately Ultimately, Allah is great and I'm not great. And ultimately, Allah is perfect and I'm not perfect. And ultimately, I, don't, didn't, I, I may think that I am God's gift to mankind, right? But ultimately, Allah never needed me. Allah never needed me. So he will reduce us down. So we should be very careful of this, right? In particular, in this day and age, we live in a public world where all of our accomplishments, accomplishments are displayed. All of our blessings are displayed. And it's fine if we do shukr to Allah and we feel comfortable with it, but it's a very slippery slope to go down. Because there's a possibility that in my heart, I now have, I, 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 in my heart, because I see how many people are appreciating me and valuing me and liking me, that, that my sense of self goes up, right? And then just be prepared. I mean, I've seen it time and time again. And may Allah protect all of us from it. Just be prepared 
some major difficulty will come and I will be, and I'll be humiliated. And, all, and I'll just come right back down. And, and actually, you know, that's a blessing. Because if that weren't to happen, and like he says, if Allah intends otherwise, says go ahead, then he will leave him to his own self-importance and pride and this misfortune will lead to his inevitable ruin. Meaning that, okay, fine, let's say that doesn't happen. That's basically Allah saying, okay, you know what, do whatever you want. You think you're everything? You think you've produced something? Go ahead and, and just go ahead and, and pursue that and on the day of judgment, it'll all come to reality. And that's a bigger issue. That's the biggest issue actually. That Allah leave us alone to ourselves, especially, not, you know, we think that when Allah's testing us, we feel like we're left alone. When in reality, that's when we have the opportunity to become the closest to Allah. It's when we are receiving a lot of attention from people, right, that, that we should be very alarmed. Because that might mean that Allah Ta'ala is leaving me to myself. Leaving me to myself. So I should never seek that. I should never, ever seek that. If it happens on its own, despite the privacy that I try to maintain in my own life, my worship, my deeds, etc., and Allah exposes me to the world that, in a positive way to, to benefit mankind and, and through, through his deen, perfect, no problem there. But, but I have to be very mindful of this, and this is something that um, you know, we should be very careful about. So with that said, inshallah, we'll conclude this session uh, and open it up for the questions. Um, so just to summarize the discussion, uh, Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, he, continuing with this theme of the happiness um, of, of, of the servant, he starts by mentioning that there's a special group of servants of Allah whom shaitan will never be able to fully derail. And our goal, desire, intention is that we become from amongst those special servants. This is mentioned in the Quran where Allah Ta'ala's special attention is on a group. And, that, and, and this, is, this is why we're all here today. We want to be part of that special group. Because, and, and, and being part of that special group doesn't mean that we're not going to falter occasionally, but it means that those falters are going to be rel relatively minimal. And it means that the opportunity for tawbah is always going to be open to us. And we learn from this, that if, in the, the, the next section, that if Allah Ta'ala wants what's good for a believer, He opens up the doors of tawbah, nadama, repentance, and, and, and regret in our relationship with Him, He opens those doors up for us. And if Allah Ta'ala, uh, and we also learn that sin sometimes becomes an opportunity for us after the fact. We never seek it, we never go toward it because that's against the adab of how we interact with Allah. But when it happens, not if it happens, but when it happens, we immediately turn back to Allah Ta'ala and in some ways this can become the way by which we approach Allah Ta'ala and become closer to Him. And on the contrary, we should be very careful about being overly proud of our deeds. Yes, it's acceptable to be happy that Allah has given us a tawfiq to worship Him, right? But to think that this is, that the problem isn't me being happy that my deeds had occurred. It's about who I'm attributing that to once they've been performed. If I have focus in my prayer, and if I say this is because of all the sacrifice that I put in, if I give, make regular contributions to sadaqah, and I say this is because of all that elbow grease I put in, all those hours and sacrifices that I made to get to the point that I am, that's where the problem is. But if I say, Alhamdulillah, Allah has blessed me with so much money and wealth that I can give. He's blessed me with energy so that I can, um, I can focus and, and worship Him. He's blessed me with, the, uh, with teachers that taught me the Qur'an. This is all from Allah and none from me. That's, you know, that's, uh, that's how we approach our deeds. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, allow us to um, uh, appreciate His involvement in, in really any good that ever comes to us. 
even if it seems like it's at our own hands, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us from amongst a special group of servants that are protected uh, from the complete derailment of Iblis and Shaitan. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us from amongst those who regularly perform tawbah uh, and repent to him on a consistent basis. So uh, we have about 10 minutes for questions. Uh, so we can... Oh, not, not 10 minutes, sorry. We only have uh, we only have seven minutes. Okay, so uh, for questions, so if the sisters uh, can pass up their questions first, and then uh, we'll address the brothers' questions as well, inshallah. So there is one question here. Um, how do we then make the small sins, the things that cause us regret instead of the big sins? Uh, or how do we make something small, like missing a particular nafil prayer, the cause of our tawbah? <clears throat> like the saying, quote, the good deeds of the regular people is like the sin or of the awliya or the friends of Allah, end quote. So this, you know, some people are at a point in their life where, alhamdulillah, at this present moment, they're not struggling with a major sin. One, it's important to appreciate that um, we're always going to be vulnerable, and it's very possible that, you know, we're, we're, this is a marathon. Life is a marathon. It's not a, it's not a race. It's not, it's not a sprint. So I don't know 10 years from now what major sin I may fall into. May Allah protect us. So we should always recognize our vulnerability. And again, this goes back to just us and our relationship with Allah and how we see Him and how we see ourselves. Um, in terms of what are two practical things that I can do that even the most minor of sins become problematic to me. They, 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 they worry me. They, they alarm me. Uh, the first is uh, to have a regular habitual practice of istighfar. So that's why we've been highlighting that every morning and every evening we should say, uh, we should do istighfar. So the ideal times are after fajr and after maghrib, but honestly anytime morning and evening uh, where we sit and we do uh, uh, istighfar. We reflect. Now, istighfar is not. We're taught istighfar to mean astaghfirullah, 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 astaghfirullah. And I can check box, check on my box uh, that I did my hundred for the day. Uh, but that's not what istighfar is. Istighfar is that I'm uttering it from my tongue, but my heart is feeling sadness, and I'm reflective upon the mistakes that I've made over the course of the day. So what will end up happening is that you'll once you get into the practice of this. Let's say I'm sitting after maghrib, I'm doing istighfar. I'll automatically first start with my sins because those are what are most apparent to me. What I looked at, what I touched, what I did, what I said, right? But then if I still have to do 80 more, right? I'm only done with my sins. Well, I still have to do a little more istighfar. So now what do I do next? Then I, I transition into, so I start with major. Then I transition into minor. Now that minor is done, now what do I do? Well, then now I do istighfar for the periods of time that I uh, was heedless of Allah. Right? Or those supererogatory acts that I should have done. I don't have to do sunnah every day, but for the seeker of Allah who's seeking Allah, the sunnah is a, is a, is a fard, it's a wajib, right? For myself, not, not legally, but for myself, it's a wajib. For the seeker of Allah, I don't have to necessarily go to the masjid every day, but for the seeker of Allah, going to the masjid every single day is essentially a wajib. There's no way around it. For the seeker, I don't have to recite Quran every day, it's not fard or wajib. No legal book will mention that. 
right? But for the seeker of Allah, interacting with the Qur'an is essentially a must. So now I begin to review those things that I should have done that are supererogatory, and I do istighfar for those. Then the ulama mentioned, you know, if there's, uh, th- there's more, I do istighfar for those moments of time where I would heedless of Allah during the day, right? Inevitable, it's going to happen that there's times where I'm heedless of Allah. Then there's another layer of istighfar, which is do istighfar because of the lack of, because of the, I do istighfar for my istighfar. Because istighfar should be a devoted practice where I'm truly uh, feeling sorry toward Allah. But because I'm so imperfect in my ability to recognize my imperfection, I do istighfar for the istighfar that I performed for Allah. So that should, then that, so, so when you have a goal of a hundred, morning and evening, inevitably you're going to cycle through this and eventually you'll reach that point where I'm doing istighfar for my istighfar. I'm doing istighfar for the supererogatory things and that becomes the pinnacle. The second practical thing a person should do is they need to spend time in the company of people who are, um, who are um, particular about these little, little things. The minor sunnas, you know, sometimes when I sit with my teachers, there's little sunnas I'm just observing that they're doing uh, and I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about that. So uh, in order for to me, I have to be mindful that these things exist. The particularities they have with praying in the masjid, the particularities they have with controlling their tongue, these sorts of things, once I become more aware of it through their company, uh, then it'll become on my radar so that it falls under the umbrella of something I need to do istighfar for. The beauty of doing istighfar also is in, in this particular question, it al- alerts me to those things that perhaps I should bring into my life. If every single day I'm doing istighfar because I didn't do my Qur'an, well, that means that at some point I should probably open the Qur'an and start reciting it. If every day I'm doing istighfar because I'm heedless of Allah for 75% of the day, at some point I should think, I should probably make this 50% or 25%. So it becomes an opportunity for improvement. Um, Is it okay to compare a person's character to teach kids that learn the good manners instead of materialism? Uh, yeah, so again, this kind of ties into this whole notion. I mean, this is a bigger discussion on just the tarbiyah of our children and what works and what doesn't work. And this is highly individualized. Sometimes people ask these questions. Um, but they're actually in their mind there's a particular circumstance they're struggling with with their child. So in that situation, I think it's always best to just individually ask. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that every child is different than the other. So sometimes people on the mic, like myself in the past, used to give broad recommendations, but every child is a little bit different. Every child's love language is different. What every child needs is going to be different. Um, So I think it's important to just appreciate that. We learned from the Sunnah of the Prophet that he dealt with people very differently on an individual basis. So uh, individualized uh, attention is important. So, um, but yes, generally speaking, there's no problem with, and maybe it's encouraged to talk to our children about the great people of our past. Um, just recognizing that, you know, when we try to, uh, it's important not to compare our children with other children. That's important. Every children is, every child is different. Now, I will say that some parents have a habit of saying, "Look at so and so. Look what they did. Look at so. Look at you know from a different family. Look how much they accomplished. What's wrong with you? Why can't you do it?" Well, I mean, that, your, your child is not that person. Your child's potential is going to be different. Your child's um, goals are going to be different. So rather than trying to compare our children to someone else's child or one of our children to another one of our children, which can be very detrimental and harmful to them, we should compare our children to their own potential. Say, so you have the ability to do this. Let's bring you here. 
not you have the ability to be like A, B, and C person. Let's try to make you that. The only person that we should want our children to be like is the Prophet ﷺ anyway. Now, the prophetic tradition is such that there's something every child can take from it. So what elements can I bring into you that will raise you so that you're more like the Prophet ﷺ in whatever way? That should be the goal for, for us and our children.